Jordan said a few moments ago, Palm Sunday is this day in between. And in some ways, we celebrate one thing, but we know that another is coming. So I thought this morning I would do something that would be, I would speak about something that would be um, much easier, like politics. I really am going to speak on politics. So if you hate politics and religion, then this is going to be a comfort, an uncomfortable conversation for you. But I hope you'll have the nerve to stay. Because I believe that the only politics that are safe are those that are tethered to the kingdom of God. It isn't politics or power you're afraid of. It's untethered politics and power. But Jesus transforms these things. Americans are cynical about politics. G.K. Chesterton, not American, but widely read here, said it's horrible when you think how few politicians are hanged. (laughs) Will Rogers said, a fool and his money are soon elected. One fella said, a politician is a statesman that approaches every subject with an open mouth. So we don't have kind things to say about politics, and yet we all play them. We play them in our family. We play them in our dorms, in our offices, on our teams, wherever we work in the public sphere. It does not matter whether we are arguing with somebody, lobbying for something, voting for something, some kind of of politics are in play. For politics is simply a conversation about power, who has it and who doesn't. And that's what makes us nervous, isn't it? Power as we know it in our world is always zero sum. If one person has more, somebody else just got less. And so we are naturally suspicious toward any person or entity that has too much power. After all, we were born out of revolution. And our government is based on the separation of powers. The moment one branch gets too much, we get nervous. So in America... At least we separate religion and politics. But in Israel, especially in Jesus' day, they were virtually the same. They were inseparable. So what happens on Palm Sunday is a political event. In fact, we can't understand what happened on Palm Sunday unless we understand it is a political event. There is worship To be sure, for some are throwing down coats and palm branches and even bowing themselves before, but it is still a political event. It starts on the Mount of Olives. Early Palm Sunday morning, there were at least four parties involved in determining Israel's future. Once you know this, it becomes more clear what's happening. One of those parties is a conservative party known as the Pharisees. They have a bad name, especially in churches, 
But the Pharisees were actually the good guys. They believed that they were the standard of true righteousness and if they could get the nation to return back to the practice of the law, just everybody go back to the law and obey God, we will be a great nation again. Next to them were the zealots. These were the resistance movement. They were the ones that would take to the streets, sometimes protest, sometimes violent. Their attempt was to overthrow the Romans and to overthrow and purge what they considered corruption in Israel's leadership. Next to them were the progressives, the Herodians. These were thoroughbreded Jews, but they were friends with Rome. So they were taking Roman ideas and wrapping them in Jewish language because they believed if they could get the nation to adapt, to become more contemporary and progressive, she would be great again. And finally, there were the secessionists, the Essenes, a small community in the south that withdrew from the public. They believed that the powers in place were just too much for now. So if they withdrew and just studied the law and waited for their day, there would come a time when what God was doing in their little colony would one day spread over the nation. And then Israel would be great again. So there were four different parties at least, maybe more, that were already active, very active, on Palm Sunday morning. This is what Jesus rode into that morning. All four parties were political, at least. All four were part of Jesus' life. All four had their own agenda, very different, and all four were a threat to the kingdom of God. The threat was not that they would overpower the kingdom, The threat is that they would distort it. They would pollute it and take it over and make it their own. What rode in to Jerusalem that morning was something like what everybody wanted and yet something entirely different. Something else. I believe, though I cannot prove, that some of the people in the crowd were really the constituents from each one of those four parties because they saw in Jesus something they loved and admired, something they wanted to get hold of and use for their purposes. And while he loved them, all of them, Whatever their agenda, he was the possession of no one party. All three synoptic gospels tell us that Palm Sunday began on the Mount of Olives. It's a little mount, not a mountain, it's just a hill. Just at the top of the Kidron Valley, 
One can stand or walk there and then descend from the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley. They'll go a little few hundred yards and then the terrain slowly rises as it comes in to the eastern gate. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke say it was on the Mount of Olives Jesus stopped and Israel had high expectations for the Mount of Olives. The prophet Zechariah said it was on the Mount of Olives the Lord God would gather the nations of the earth. From the Mount of Olives, they would descend on the city of Jerusalem. They would ransack the city. And when they were half done, God himself, in the words of Zechariah, standing with both feet on the Mount of Olives, as it splits, would descend himself in the company of his holy ones, and he would overthrow the nations in the city as they were attacking it. And then, in the words of Zechariah, the Lord himself will be king over all the earth. So the thing to remember here is that all of the prophecies that aim toward Palm Sunday are not primarily religious in nature. They are political in nature. They're not about establishing a savior as you think of the word. They were about establishing a new king. What was happening on Palm Sunday was the inauguration of a new king. So standing on the Mount of Olives... Jesus orders his disciples to go get a donkey. They bring back a donkey. He gets on the donkey and starts to ride down through the valley toward the city. He does this to fulfill the prophet Zechariah who said to Israel, Behold your king, there it is again, comes to you riding on the back of a donkey. As he rides into the city, people are throwing palm branches in front of him. Sometimes they're coats. And they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Straight from Psalm 118, one of six psalms that Israel sang on Passover where they remembered the deliverance from Egypt and they looked forward to the deliverance from Rome. One more time, this is not primarily a religious moment. This is laced with politics. There will come a king and he will deliver our nation from the grip of Rome. As Jesus rides in through the eastern gate, we learn from one scholar, John Dominic Crossan, that there was very likely another entrance through the western gate we hear nothing about. It was common, it was traditional in those days for the Romans to come and converge upon Jerusalem at the start of Passover because there would be almost there would be hundreds of thousands of people inside of a tiny city and there needed to be control. And the Romans wanted to be a presence. They wanted to at least pretend to the Jews that they cared about them. So if Crossan is right about this, I want you to think about what is happening here now. As Jesus goes into the eastern gate on the donkey, there is... 
another ruler coming through the western gate on a horse. Jesus is surrounded by a few fishermen and outcasts, and he, Pilate, is surrounded by the military. The city is tense. They have one king and another one who would be king is now riding in the other gate. This is why Matthew tells us the entire city was stirred. The word means there was an earthquake. It's the same word used for the earthquake on Easter. The city was shaken by the political tension that morning. There are two visions of kings. Two kinds of power. Jesus goes straight into the temple. Israel's national symbol, the center of its religion. He goes into the court of the Gentiles and starts overturning the tables. That's where things went south. This is my opinion. Edit this later on. The temple, to me, is a lot like American Christianity. And what Jesus said about the temple that day could be said about a lot of American Christianity. I intended this to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a den of thieves. You've turned this into a political, social center, and this is primarily a house of prayer. You gather to connect To exchange power. But you do not pray. In most American churches, the announcements take longer than the prayer. The temple was also a place where the Gentiles would gather. When Solomon built it in his dedicatory prayer, he said to Yahweh, when the Gentiles have no rain, when there are plagues upon the land of the Gentiles, may the Gentiles, the non-Jews, come to this place and pray to you, O Yahweh, that Israel had turned it into a national symbol of its own identity. They set up shop in the court of the Gentiles because in the words of one rabbi, the Gentiles were polluted anyway. He rides in, walks into the court of the Gentiles and gets rid of the obstacles. Maybe if Jesus came back to the American church today, he would say, I intended the church to be a place for all people. And you have made it a place for your own. You have so many layers 
in between somebody who wants to belong and the people that actually do. So it's possible if Jesus came back today into the American church, he might overturn the tables, ours. The thought is rattling, isn't it? When the day is over, Jesus wisely turns and gets out of town. (laughs) He leaves. You would think he'd stay. He doesn't. The following day, he comes back into the city. And listen to this. For the next five days, the word king will be attached to Jesus' name ten times. Keep in mind, it was never attached to Jesus' name, save on the time he was born and the Magi came in and said, where is he that is born king of the Jews? He is never identified as a king again until Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day he takes up the label that the Gentiles gave him and rides into Jerusalem. Watch it and begins to redefine what it means to be king. This is not power acted differently. This is a different kind of power. It is a fundamentally different kind of power. It is rooted in a different place. And the effect that it has on the people around it is profoundly different than the power of Rome. On Good Friday or Thursday night, we don't know which, Jesus will stand before Pilate and he will ask him, are you a king? Jesus will say, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my followers would resist you. But as it is, my kingdom is from another place. Pilate said, ah, so you are a king. Jesus said, it is as you have said, and it's emphatic in the Greek, it is as you have said. Those are your words, not mine. Pilate turns him over, gives him to the guards. They take him in the praetorium. They take a crown of thorns. They slam it on his head in a form of mockery. Here is our king. And while they do it, they put a robe around his shoulder and they start to punch him in the face and say, who hit you? Who hit you? Hail, king of the Jews. They turn him around. They take him back in front of Pilate. He is now wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. A parody of kingship. And before Pilate can say a word, the chief priest will look to him and say, anyone who lets this man go is not a friend of Caesar, the king. Anyone who says he is a king, is an enemy of Caesar. And so in a form of mockery, Pilate stands him before the crowd, wearing the crown, wearing the robe, purple, and introduces him with the words, 
Behold your king. The chief priests cry out, we have no king but Caesar. They turn him around. They walk him toward Golgotha where he will be crucified. On the way, a soldier comes, interferes with the path according to Luke and says to Jesus, so if you are a king, save yourself. Jesus says not a word. Instead, he goes straight to Golgotha. They lay him on top of a cross, and before they mount it, they put the sign over his head, which was common in those days where they named the crime that the criminal had committed. And the sign said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Well, the Jews were upset, and they came to Pilate and said, you can't say that. You should say he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. It stays. For the next six hours, while his life slowly ebbs away, he will die under the title king of the Jews. Everything in me fights this. Everything in me wants him to rise up and act like a king. He's got power. He said he did. He said he could have called thousands of angels. He does not a thing. And I just can't understand you guys why in the moment when he needs the power, he will not grab it. Why he will not act like a king. (laughs) And then it occurred to me, he was. If you will listen to the text instead of fight it with your assumptions, it will occur to you that Jesus is redefining what it means to be king. People don't die for kings in Jesus' world. Kings die for people. And that is not power used differently. That is a fundamentally kind of power. And it is so strange and distasteful to most people in this room. It gets right up in our grill. It confronts us. It challenges us. It convicts us. And we take our vengeance on it by calling it weakness. Jesus will hang on a cross for six hours and he will match every ounce of power coming from Rome. Rome will have the ability, the capacity to inflict suffering and he will have the capacity to endure it. In Rome, there will be peace through domination and intimidation. And in Jesus' kingdom, there will be peace through reconciliation. Rome will terrify its enemies until they submit. Jesus will convert his enemies with humility. In fact, 
The integrity of Jesus is confirmed four times in the last 72 hours of his life. Every time by someone who was an adversary. It was not a disciple who said, I find no fault in this man. It was Pilate himself. It was not a disciple who said, leave this man alone. He is innocent. It was Pilate's wife. It was not a disciple who said, this man has done nothing wrong. It was a thief on a cross. It was not a disciple who said, surely he is the son of God. It was the centurion overseeing the crucifixion. In a profound kind of power, Jesus converts the insides, the way that his adversaries are thinking. He isn't making Christians out of them. But they find when they look at him, all of their biases were wrong. It is hard to live or hard to resist a life so well lived. Here is a kind of power that is foreign in the church. In the last, oh, what's it been, you guys, three or four years? We've had arguments about everything. We've had arguments about politics. We've had arguments about elections. We've had arguments about race. We've had arguments about mandates, vaccines. It seems like for the last three or four years, all we have done is argue. Some of us are like the conservatives. Your argument is if we could just get this country back to the conservative route and follow the laws of God, there would be a revival and we would reform it. And some of you are like the resistance party. No, no, it's too far gone. If we would just go after the power structures and overthrow the power structures and bring in our agenda of social justice, we would be a great nation again. And some of you are like the progressive party. No, no, you say both sides are wrong. It, <laughs> the world has changed, brother. What we need are new ideas put together with old ideals. And if we could bring them together, we would have an even more fruitful nation. And some of you are like the secessionists. You just kind of withdraw and say, no, if we just stay out of it, man, let it burn. And then someday... We will move back in and God will give us the country. And I guess what's bothering me is not our agenda. What's bothering me is our power. The problem is not that we come from different agendas. We have always had different agendas. The problem is that we have the same power. And it is the power to override. The power to shout. The power to condemn. The power to defend oneself and promote oneself. And then dismiss oneself when the argument gets too tense, that's the part that's got to die. 
By all means, church, hold on to your convictions, but crucify your power. Or you scare me. This is a power without ego. It's a power that hides. It gets under people. It doesn't go over them. It's a power that loses an argument it could have won despite having deep convictions because it respects the integrity of another person and allows them to change at their own speed. And when they want, it does not label, it does not accuse, it does not point out the flaws of others, it does not even try to convert them. It just lives in the most beautiful way in a life that is hard to disagree with. What dies on the cross that day is not just your savior, church. It's your agenda. It's your little kingdom. Think hard about the next time you have to win an argument. Ooh, that you're right. It's not, um, it's not a coincidence that both Jesus and, and Paul allude to the cross as being something that happens to us, not just him. Jesus said, if a man will be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross. There it is, not mine, his. Take up his cross and follow me. And Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, it is Christ who lives in me. I glory in nothing, said Paul, except the cross through which the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world indeed. In 2 Corinthians, I die daily. In my office, in a desk, not far from my reach, something I stumbled across some years ago, which I find so inspiring, but so hard to do. Can I read you part of it? When you are forgotten or neglected and purposely set aside, and you sting and you hurt with the insult of the oversight, yet your heart is happy and you count it worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is evil spoken of, and your wishes are crossed, your advice disregarded, your opinions ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise up in your heart, or even to defend yourself, but you take it all in patient, loving kindness, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself, in a conversation, 
or record your own good works or itch after a compliment. When you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. When you see your brother prosper and yet your needs are greater and they are unmelt, unmet and yet there is joy in your heart for your brother's prosperity, that is dying to self. When you can receive correction and reproof from someone of less stature than yourself and you can humbly sit inwardly as well as outwardly and find no rebellion or resentment welling up within you, that is dying to self. And when you have died like that, You can live. You come alive. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains just a seed. Mm. But if it dies, what is possible if it dies? It produces Thousands of seeds. But you gotta die. Dying is not a single act in spite of what you heard. It is a series of actions taken every day. It isn't something you just decide to do and then the work is done and go on. It is an about face and a change in the way that you come across life. You begin to practice disciplines that lead to dying. Just as there are disciplines that lead to success and those same disciplines create power, by the way, there are also disciplines that lead to unsuccess. And I don't mean failure, I mean unsuccess. There are disciplines that lead away from notoriety and popularity. And if we want to live the power of a crucified life, we will have to practice those disciplines too. One of them is the discipline of secrecy. It is the daily habit of doing in secret things that would make us popular if other people found out. So it's giving our resources to others in secret. It is praying and interceding for others in a closet, not in a public square. It's being a better saint when no one is looking than you are when everyone is looking. It's doing your alms before God and not each other. Something happens when it occurs to us for the first time that we are being watched. We start managing our image. We get nervous about what other people are thinking about us. 
And the chains come on, don't they? We start living up to the image we think people have of us. This is why the greatest work of most saints occurs when they are only doing what they would do naturally and not for a public. This is why a person's greatest success often occurs in the first part of their life. Because after they have it, the audience notices, and from that point on, we become blind and deaf in over-animation. Celebrity, said John Updike, is a mask that eats the face. The moment one becomes aware of being watched, from that moment on, it is hard to find authenticity again. The discipline of secrecy is the daily habit of hiding your righteousness. There is the discipline of surrender, which is the habit daily of submitting our wills, our positions, our privileges, and our rights so other people in our circle can rise. There is the discipline of service, which is the daily habit of doing small things, things that are below us, things that other people could do, things that don't require our best energies, but they're necessary. The discipline of service is the habit of doing the dishes. We have been groomed by our culture to promote ourselves, defend ourselves, recuse ourselves, fight for ourselves. My goodness, we invent ourselves on social media. The gospel this morning, people, is that the world is a perfectly good and safe place. That you are in the hands of a loving father who has given you your identity. Your identity is not what you think others want you to be, nor even what you want to be yourself. Your identity is given to you by Almighty God. And on the day you embrace that and live into those beautiful things he has said about you, Chosen and foreordained and holy and blameless, the bride of Christ. When you live into that identity, you are suddenly free from everything you feel compelled to become. You pick up a different kind of power that is more persuasive than the kind you had, and yet it's quiet. It's sweet, but it's intelligent, powerful, but soft, subtle, but striking. 
You have the capacity to do that this morning. Even begin to do that by picking up one of these disciplines and training yourself in a crucified power. Somewhere in the middle of his letter to the Philippians, Paul wrote to a community that was in the middle of dispute. They were arguing amongst themselves with Pilate's power. And in this letter, he gave a beautiful description of the kind of community he wanted them to be. And I thought this morning, before we go, I would read this over you. Would you stand? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any communion in the spirit, make my joy complete and be like-minded. Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourselves. Don't look to your own interests. Look to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ himself, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped for his own advantage. No, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death yes even death on a cross therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him a name that is above every name so at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, even under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let the people say, 